Support for this episode comes from Beerwolf. Beerwolf understands that never before have so many incredible flavors, styles, and brands been waiting to be discovered. That's why Beerwolf has built an online store to make it easier for you to find delicious beer in a way that's affordable, convenient, and fun. Beerwolf.com gives you access to hundreds of beers from local and international brewers at the touch of a button, delivered direct to your doorstep in just 24 hours. To find out more about Beerwolf, head on over to Beerwolf.com. That's wolf with a U, beerwlf.com, and discover your new favourite beer. Whether that's a New England IPA or a Belgian blonde, there's a world of beer to unlock. Cheers to that. Right behind me as I record this is a copy of Michael Tom Smears' American Sour Beers. Although I've never brewed a sour beer in my life, I suspect I could have a pretty good go at it with the information he gives. If I want to know about hops, I have a copy of For the Love of Hops, which I bet most of you have as well. In my Amazon basket, just waiting for me to win the lottery so I can buy all, are books on yeast, malt, water, and making the perfect pizza. Truth be told, there's around 200 books in my basket, but not a single one on barrel aging beer. Why? It's not that I have anything against barrel aging. I'm one of those people who could weaken the knees if I visit a brewery and see a hundred or more barrels in use. Like hearing a Gregorian chant or a Byzantine flag fluttering under a Greek blue sky, there is something timeless about barrels that reaches across the ages of beer brewing. No, the reason why my basket is empty on the barrel front is there are no decent books on barrel aging and just one piss poor one. While almost every aspect of brewing can be described as an exact science, barrel aging is probably what inspired the chaos theory. What does seem a bit crazy about all this is that in some breweries across the channel are those with long, long lineages and using wooden barrels to ferment an aged beer. You'd think by now they would have written the Bible of barrels. That said, if I was writing the end-all book on barrel aging, I'd also include with it a feng shui chart, a lunar calendar, and five dice. You start dealing with wood, microbes, and a bit of who knows what, and anything can happen. But that said, you've come to this podcast for wooden barrel answers and answers you shall be given. Let me first just find my crystal ball. Hi, this is Vela Mitrovich of Revy Media's Brewers Journal Podcast. Welcome back to the second episode on barrel aging. In this podcast, we'll be talking about how to choose a barrel. We'll hear the next part of Chris Pilkington's amazing talk on barrel aging when he talks about process and concept. And there'll be a ton more information on barrel aging. Too, too much to list here. And... We'll end with ways in which you can get some of the same taste and advantages of wood aging, but without a barrel. In this last episode, we talked about the history of barrels. Your heart is no doubt still racing from this. The history of beer and barrels, why the industry still uses barrels, despite all the problems with them, and all the different flavors you can achieve by using a wooden barrel. Well, there has been an end broken stream of barrel aging going back over a thousand years. I would call what's happening today a rebirth, 
starting with Goose Island Bourbon Stout, which the Chicago Brewery started making in 1992. Wooden barrel aging expertise has since been passed along from brewer to brewer with one hell of a lot of experimenting along the way. At November's Beer Congress, somebody told me during a break that you could easily spot the more successful wooden barrel brewers. They're the ones carrying around a personal notebook, he said, crammed full of notes dating back at least 10 years. So onwards, let's talk about the nuts and bolts of barrels. Most brewers that use barrels have already fermented the beer in still tanks and then filters the beer before it enters the wood. These brewers are using the barrels to add flavor, to take out some of the harsh edges, or to use the barrels as an ideal environment for souring bacteria. While there are always exceptions to every rule, and barrel aging seems to lead the world in rule exceptions, if you're using a used barrel, your choices are barrels that were used for either spirits or wine. Over in the States, by law, if you're going to call your booze Kentucky Sour Mash Bourbon, you're going to need to use a newly made oak barrel that's been charred, and you can only use it once, which is ideal for the beer industry in need of barrels. Or it used to be, when the major distilleries such as Jack Daniels, Jim Bean, or Knob Creek had barrels for the begging. But with everyone wanting barrels for beer, those days are gone. In the UK... Whiskey distilleries have to age their whiskey for at least three years in a wooden cask. Depending on the distillery, they either use American bourbon barrels, Spanish sherry, or port barrels, and a couple use barrels from the West Indies rum distillery. While this sounds good for the barrel aging beer industry, the distilleries can reuse the barrels for a number of times depending on what flavors they want to get out of the barrel or don't want to. Well, you know, I hate to digress. Let me digress just slightly here. If you went to the craft beer rising in London, you might have noticed someone from Jameson Whiskey giving out samples of their stout whiskey. What Jameson and Jose Covero Tequila in the States are doing is that they're supplying barrels to specific breweries with the proviso that the barrels be returned to them. So Jameson is providing Franciscan Well Brewery in Cork, Ireland with wooden barrels to age their stout then the barrels are returned to Jameson to be refilled with their whiskey. At Odell Brewing in Colorado, they get the tequila barrels, use them for their tequila base HIPA, and then return them to Jose Covero, who uses them for their special El Cast Finish Edition. At CBR, the stout whiskey I sampled tasted a bit chocolatey with kind of a roast flavor. Definitely a sipping whiskey rather than a mixer. Back to beer. If you've acquired barrels that once contained spirits, lucky you. The higher level of alcohol keeps most bugs at bay. We've all heard about the angel's share of whiskey taken while it's aging. Well, I don't know how thirsty angels are, but barrels really have a thirst. They absorb about a gallon of spirits during the aging process, so don't lose sleep over the problem of problem-causing microbes and have pleasant dreams over how that bourbon, whiskey, rum, or tequila flavor will interact with your stout. If the barrels you've acquired once held wine, it's definitely not the end of the world. Wine barrels have a tendency to allow the beer flavor to shine through, unlike spirit barrels where bourbon can be a dominant flavor. Unlike those U.S. bourbon barrels that can only be used once, vintners can and do reuse a wine barrel several times. 
There's one massive barrel I saw in Baja, California, that I swear the wine makers must have reused over several centuries. The advantage of getting a multiple reused barrel is that the flavor of the wood used in the barrel, which you might not want, is pretty much gone. And last but surely not least is that wine barrels holding a much lower alcohol product can have a strong growth of bread and lactobacillus if this is what you're after. In fact, a bread infection is the main reason why wineries get rid of barrels. Even if you're not going after a bread-dominant brew, a bit of bread can metabolize byproducts from other microbes. Regarding these microbes in a wooden barrel, while whiskey barrel can go sour, a sour barrel can never go clean. According to craft beer and brewing, microorganisms can infiltrate a barrel up to a depth of almost a centimeter, which is deeper than you can sanitize without destroying the barrel. This isn't necessarily bad, giving you a way of keeping your own special house yeast and bacteria like the Belgians do. If you go online, you'll see people prepping barrels with everything from hot water to burning sulfur strips. If you want your life to be easy, try to stick to freshly empty barrels, using spirit barrels for clean beers and wine barrels for sour. If a barrel is fresh, its staves are still swollen, giving you a watertight affair, and there is less chance for the barrel to become contaminated with wild yeast or anything else it wanted if it sat around for a year. If you get in there with your high-pressure hose and wash the bejeebers out of it, you'll also be washing out some of the flavors you want. I would recommend highly you do a bit of schmoozing with a successful wood barrel brewer and see what she's doing. Generally though, if you're sanitizing a barrel, use a hot water temperature of around 80 degrees C or hotter. A little bit further in this, Chris Pelkington talks about the pluses and minuses of cleaning barrels. But I will pass on this. Remember the porous nature of wood before you start using cleaners or chemicals. Is this the flavor you want in your finished beer? I have a plastic chopping board that is a whole lot less porous than wood, but I only allow it to be used for watermelon. I don't care how many times it's been cleaned. Use it for anything else, and I could taste it in my watermelon. If you bought older barrels, there is an excellent chance that the staves had dried out and have shrunk. There was no adhesive between the staves, nor any nail screws or anything else holding them in place, relying on the compression between the swollen staves and the barrel hoops. If the staves dry out, they will leak. Repeat after me, dried out barrels will leak. You fill the barrel then with beer and you'll be cleaning your floors for a week. The two recommendations are that you either fill the barrel up with warm water, which some will leak, and keep it topped up until the barrel has become tight. Or instead of filling the barrel, you could also use your steam cleaner or washer and keep going over the staves until they seal. I chilled up with water then to check for leaks. Water's cheap and a lot easier to clean. Many brewers believe that rehydrated barrels should be used only for sour beers. You're taking a huge quality risk if you use them for clean beers. In the first part of barrel aging, we hear from barrel expert Chris Pelkinton, and we will pick up again with Chris. For those of you who haven't listened to the first part yet, or who have a short memory, Chris is the head brewer at Estonia's Poyala Brewery. 
Chris is a big believer in the process and concept in creating your beers. He says that with process, it's a difference between an average beer to a truly exceptionally good pint. This, he says, is where you could dial it all in. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to go through what we do. And again, bear in mind that what works for us might not work for you. But maybe there's something here that gives a pause to think or a little insight into how we're doing it. So, basically, our process begins even before we get the, uh, we get the barrels on site. We know what's going to go into them ahead of time. We brew that recipe so that it's going to be ready basically as soon as those barrels enter our, enter our door so that we don't have them sitting around drying out uh, in the warehouse. We don't like that for obvious reasons. Uh, and it does happen that things get delayed, fermentations can take longer than uh, expected, but generally it's worked pretty well. So. What we'll do then is if they're, if they're arriving and they're as fresh as we'd like them to be, then sometimes we'll even fill straight into there, depending on what it's previously held. If not, if they've come and they're not totally perfect condition that we'd like, sort of still a little bit of liquid in the bottom, then we'll give them a gentle steaming. And we actually will generally steam some higher alcohol barrels anyway. There's... Um, there's a lot of discussion over whether or not that strips aroma and flavor, to which I would say, Absolutely it does, but we'll get to that in a second. It's not the whole picture. What we're doing is uh, that steaming is also helping to plug some of the sort of leaks within the barrels, and those are then going to allow, if they're not plugged, then they're going to allow oxygen to further sort of enter through the life cycle, and they're going to start pouring beer out of the barrel in the absolute worst condition. And you don't want to have a barrel that's leaking throughout the, uh, the life cycle. That's attracting sort of spoilage organisms uh, from day one, not a good way to start off. Uh, but on the other hand, what I'm saying about the flavor and aromas being stripped from the steaming, I actually kind of view that as a positive thing in some ways, because we've noticed uh, in side-by-side tests that it seems more that it's removing the sort of more basic, harsher alcoholic notes, uh, and it's allowing more of the complex uh, spirit and oak to mingle in with the, uh, with the beer itself. So we find that... Um, that's more what we're after. You maybe lose a little bit of the alcohol pickup from the barrel from that. That's not a bad thing in our opinion. Um, so yeah. The next stage, what we want to do is we want to we want to give that a light purge before we start filling it, and then we want to uh, get that beer filled, get the bung on as soon as we can. Um, whilst we're doing this, we're recording data constantly. We'll write spreadsheets are your friend, as uh, as many of you know, and. Um, and yeah, we'll record absolutely everything. Maybe we'll see on that Heaven Hill barrel up there, maybe there's a barcode that would tell us exactly what sort of brand that used to hold. That's all useful information, so that gets recorded in our spreadsheet. Maybe when you're steaming it, the cognac barrel is giving a little bit more vanilla, this one, than the others, which are all red fruits. We record that. And I should point out, individually numbering your barrels is absolutely essential in this case. It's extremely helpful. Chris says that when they first started out and only had six barrels, they'd named the barrels. Now with over 150 barrels on the go, they're all numbered for efficiency. So next up is the, uh, is the storage. The, just, like, uh, just like yeast and fermentation stages, then you want to give your barrel and your ingredients their best possible home. So what we've found is uh, we like to have temperature control in the barrel room is, is very, very nice. 
highly recommend at a stable temperature, but more importantly, I think, is humidity. We like to keep ours around about 70% or so, which is a challenge, but beyond that, much higher, much lower, we find is really increasing the chance of uh, spoilage bacteria, or it's sort of allowing those barrels to dry out. For obvious reasons, neither of those are good, so we want to keep that humidity under a nice control. Going to temperature again, though, we use around about 14 degrees for our barrel room. You can go colder, you can go warmer. Colder, we've found, slows down the flavor pickup a little bit more, and we find we get a bit more of the oak character coming at that. That's a useful technique, though. Maybe you've got a, barrel, uh, a beer in a barrel that's absorbing flavor way too quickly. Stick that in your cold room, and you can slow that down a little bit. Um, and go from there. But more importantly is a stable temperature, whether you're doing it cold, whether you're doing it warm. Stable temperature, keeping the airflow in the room consistent, means that the barrels at the top of your racks or the bottom of your racks won't be at wildly different temperatures. Because that way, again, when you're tasting, then you're going to have to pull a sample from the top, from the bottom, from the middle, from the next one. Otherwise, again, you've got different flavors going on in all your different barrels, and that's always hard to make decisions on. So, whilst they're aging, what do you want to do? You want to taste them, of course. We taste very re relatively regularly, trying to keep uh, as little O2 coming into the beer as possible, uh, blanking with a bit of CO2 as we, uh, as we pull. And we make notes, we see how barrels are developing, individual ones, so we know what to kind of expect in that sense. We run micro in every single barrel as well when we feel we're getting close to, uh, close to release. That's not always the easiest. Uh, if you're with a brewery and uh, you don't have a micro program, it can be very tricky to sort of begin that just for the barrels. But it's always something to look into because even a small amount of a, of a bad batch, even if it's tasting right in the beginning, that can seriously impact your end product. It's far better to pour away a single barrel then, even if it's a little bit of a sad moment, than to uh, have a whole recall or uh, have someone who comes up to you at a festival and says, you know what, this bottle just didn't taste right. It had that weird sour note in it and it was too fizzy. Those are all things that we want to avoid. How you take samples from the barrel isn't extremely difficult. Vinny Caluso, the brewer and owner of Russian River Brewing Company, says that they drill a small hole into the barrel head, about halfway up each barrel. And he says it doesn't matter if the barrel is dry or full of beer. But if it is full, be ready with your nail to plug the hole. That said, with the barrel not vented, the flow stream isn't that powerful. Some breweries treat the art of sampling like brain surgery and maintain an extremely antiseptic environment while drilling, etc. Others don't seem to see the need. With clear beers, more care is needed in preventing unwanted bacteria from infecting the beer. With sours, this isn't as much of a problem. When you're getting close to release, you want to taste every single barrel individually because you just want to be sure that everything is good. You want to put them all together as a blend, and then you want to taste that blend as well. You cannot do too much of it. What we're doing every time we pull samples for tasting as well is we're checking the sort of, we note down the filling uh, gravity, the filling pH, and we just monitor how those are developing over time so that we kind of know we have a bit of a heads up if anything is going strange in those barrels. And then finally, when we're ready to go, we'll rack out of barrels into stainless, we'll add ingredients if we need to add ingredients, and, uh, and we'll make some more notes. How long was it sitting in that barrel for? That's all useful stuff. You get a baseline for, uh, for the, uh, the next time you're gonna use those. 
So process is good. We're now moving on to what honestly should be in your mind from day one concept. So here, this is, uh, this is us when we're filling um, the very first beer that went, went, into, uh, went into barrels. Uh, it was a rye porter aged in Pinot Noir that we brewed with uh, our good friends Lervig from, uh, from Norway. And we did a lot of stuff wrong, um, but there was a lot of stuff that I would say we actually did right on, uh, in hindsight. Hindsight's always 2020, of course. So, uh, so we still get, in my opinion, the big thumbs up from Mr. Samu there. Um, what we did is, as a brewery, we're based in Estonia. Estonia is known for their sort of higher alcohol beers. Our very first one was an Imperial Baltic Porter. So we knew that barrel aging was always going to be a component. And it's always fascinated me, and I've always wanted to see how we can pull more flavors, how we can design beers for barrels instead of just putting beer in barrels, really kind of marrying everything together. I think part of that comes from uh, sort of the, uh, the Scotsman in me being surrounded by the Scotch whiskey industry always. In some of their first attempts, Chris says a lot of things went wrong, but they also did a lot of things right. When we started off in, um, in our barrel aging, we knew that this was not a one-off collaboration. This was rather our springboard for that. So we knew we want to fill kegs of the base beer. We want to then taste the two side by side later on and, uh, and develop our sort of profile. We then pulled out base beers, one barrel here, one barrel there, all of different ones, so that by the time we had space for a larger barrel room, then we already had a repository of what worked and what, what needs more time here. We could really put everything together there. And I think that's extremely useful when you know going forward uh, how you can optimize your procedures. You can really build on it. And that comes into play with the beers that you do. You know what ingredients you want to use. You know what your process is going to be. When you have a concept for your beer already and your identity as a brewery, it really helps set you up for success rather than sort of moving randomly from one barrel project to the next. That's the biggest advice that I could give there. Execution ties it all together. And I'll bring in the words of, to paraphrase the words of the late, great uh, Anthony Bourdain and just say, you know, you can go into uh, just down the road another world-class barrel aging facility and uh, they'll do everything completely differently. So try what works for you, but keep the basics intact. Know what you're doing, use good ingredients, and do everything correctly. Let's say you're thinking of aging one of your beers. You have a specific taste you're going after, but the hit or miss aspect of a wooden barrel or the investment in wooden scares you. Are there any other options out there? Most definitely. For years and years, Anheuser-Busch has proudly proclaimed that its beer is beechwood age. If you ask any American what this means, 99 times out of 100, they'll tell you that Budweiser is aged in beechwood barrels. But Budweiser is never saying this. It's just beechwood age. That's because Bud uses beechwood chips, not barrels. But in this case, the beechwood aging isn't even used for flavor but to increase the contact area between the yeast and the beer. Anheuser-Busch starts with long chunks of beech wood, which is then treated with baking soda to reduce the already mild flavor contribution of the wood. The wood forms a substrate to collect yeast, increasing the yeast-beer interface as compared to a thicker layer of yeast at the bottom of the tank. They could get a similar effect using any non-reactive substrate, such as ceramic, but ceramic age just doesn't have the same ring to it. 
According to California's Drake Brewery, wood aging can be a fickle friend. From their experiments with oak barrels, they know that the subtle play of oak tones ranging from sweet vanilla or caramel notes to mild spiciness of clove or cinnamon to woody aromas and flavors can add dimension and complexity to their ales in a pretty satisfying way. Still, the long time it takes to achieve these flavors from aging in a full barrel sometimes means that compromising the fresher flavors of the hops or malt. Also, their barrels, old former bourbon wine brandy barrels, have other flavor components that come into play besides the pure oak. So, in an effort to see where a little straight oak tones can give to their fresh beers, Drake's recently began experimenting with oak wood chips. Wood chips are small pieces of wood, in Drake's case oak, but they also come in numerous other types, usually about two inches long that have been toasted to varying degrees, untoasted, light, medium, and heavy, to achieve different flavor components. Chips with their greater surface area are able to infuse beers with oak flavors more quickly than barrels, which for Drake means that they could get oak flavor without losing some of the fresher flavors of their beers. If the brewery began by taking growlers of a range of fresh beers, taking any time between when the beers had just finished and were conditioning to the point when they were ready to be packaged. They then added a different type of oak chip to each growler and let them mellow, tasting the beers at one week, two weeks, and up to a month. Drake says, Overall, we came to learn that just a little bit of oak can go a long way. In some of our trials, the oak did impart nice flavors, but it overpowered the beer, leading us to think that maybe larger chip sizes and smaller amounts could be better. Some of the conclusions were expected. The draconic imperial stout did well with a hint of oak. Others were unexpected. Who knew the half-season might taste pretty good with a small dose of heavily toasted oak chips? Our brewer Alex noticed how she particularly liked how oak could be used for hoppy beers. She says, with wood chips, you could retain some of the bitterness and fresh hop character that falls away in the barrels. Besides wood chips, some brewers use oak cubes. These have several layers of toast due to the thickness and shape of the cube. A toasted oak cube will have varying degrees of color along each side. These layers represent the level of heat penetration during the toasting process. Heat is what brings out all the different wonderful flavors of the wood, and different temperatures with different woods for different lengths of time develop different flavors. Oak cubes replicate the complex flavors of a barrel better than chips because the cubes are able to have multiple toast levels like a barrel would. A U.S. company, the Barrel Mill, is marketing the infusion spiral system, which it claims gives you the advantages of wood chips, but without all the mess. Besides offering different toasts and some exotic woods for different flavors, the company say brewers are taking their oak spirals, soaking them in bourbon for a week, and then inserting them in the conditioning tanks. Barrel Mill says, Aging beer with infusion spiral systems is faster than using used bourbon barrels, costs less, and takes less space. The amount of time needed for your beer to benefit from treatment with the infusion spiral system depends on the style and alcohol content of your beer. Bigger stouts require about four weeks contact time, whereas lighter color brews only need 10 to 14 days. Here are my closing thoughts on barrel aging. Before you take the plunge, here are some questions you need to ask yourself and the team. What is it exactly you're trying to do? 
produce something exciting or just jumping on the bandwagon? Can you afford it? Barrels aren't cheap. Can you afford to pour beer down the drain until you've mastered the art? Unless you bring in a brewer with barrel aging experience, you're not going to knock it out of the ballpark with your first, second, or third efforts. Do you have the space to rack barrels for months at a time? Do you have the time to spend on learning this? And we have the customers to justify your outlay. If you're in a small village, are your customers lining up and telling you, oh, can you please serve me something that might have me gagging while charging me twice as much as my usual pint? Some brewers are doing extremely well producing some amazing wood barrel aged beers and some are charging a fortune for the privilege of drinking their brews. Just make sure it's the right move for you. This has been Velo Mitrovich, and you've been listening to the Brewer's Journal Podcast. For more great podcasts, go to reviewmedia.com. Thanks for listening.